This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is part two of a two-part episode. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, you'll want to go back to episode 177 and listen to that first. At the end of last week's episode, we left off with Arthur Hutchins, who claimed to be the missing boy, Walter Collins, finally identified as a runaway from Illinois and sent home. Christine Collins had insisted to the police from the beginning that the boy was not her son. She was punished for it by being locked in a psychiatric ward. Once released, she sued the LAPD and won. But the question that still remained was where was her son, Walter Collins? In this episode, as the story continues, we'll discover that Walter was not the only boy reported missing in 1928. A predator had been stalking and kidnapping boys from the greater Los Angeles area. His identity and the chilling fate of Walter Collins would soon be uncovered. Just an additional warning. This episode describes crimes against children. If you are particularly sensitive to this subject, please use discretion before listening. This is part two of Familiar Strangers, The Disappearance of Walter Collins. In September 1928, Jessie Clark traveled from her home in Saskatchewan, Canada, to California to visit her little brother Sanford. Sanford had begun to misbehave at home as he reached his teen years. His mother Winifred, at her wit's end, took her brother up on an offer to have the boy come live with him in California. Her brother's name was Gordon Stewart Northcott. At the time he offered to take the boy in, Gordon was only 20 years old. In 1924, Winifred and Gordon's parents, Sarah and Cyrus George Northcott, moved to Los Angeles. Gordon had helped his father start a poultry farming operation. They built a house in rural Riverside County and began raising chickens in a small town called Wineville. Once the farm began providing Gordon a small income, his parents left him there to run it alone. Sarah and Cyrus returned to Los Angeles and would occasionally make the one-hour trip east to check on Gordon and the ranch. Gordon told his sister he could use some help running the ranch and offered to take his 13-year-old nephew in as a ranch hand. Gordon presented this solution as a way to help the boy, quote, improve his character with hard work and discipline, unquote. All seemed to go well with this arrangement at first, but after Sanford had been living with his uncle for about two years, his mother and sister Jessie began receiving strange letters from him. Although in the letters, Sanford claimed that all was well, his family thought the way he expressed himself seemed odd. There were words and phrases written in the letters that seemed very unlike Sanford's way of speaking. They suspected that the letters were being dictated to him, which could only be by Gordon. His sister Jessie decided to visit her brother in California to make sure all really was well. But the visit did little to put Jessie's mind at ease. First of all, her once headstrong brother, now 15, spoke very little to her. It was like pulling teeth to have a conversation with him. He also acted extremely skittish around his Uncle Gordon. Sanford had lost quite a bit of weight and appeared unhealthy. 
not at all like the strong and hardy ranch hand she thought he'd resemble after two years of farm work. Jessie also noticed marks on her brother, bruises and injuries that made her suspect that he was being abused by their uncle. Jessie also got the impression that her uncle was hiding something. The way he slunk around and shared whispered conversations with her brother made her fear something strange was going on at the isolated ranch. When she tried to broach the subject one day, her uncle Gordon turned on her and made as if to strike her. Now frightened and alarmed, she left the ranch and returned to Canada. As soon as she arrived, she told her mother what she'd experienced, and together they decided to call the U.S. authorities about their concerns. On September 15, 1928, deputies drove out to the Northcott Ranch in Wineville. When they arrived, they found 15-year-old Sanford Wesley Clark alone on the property. The owner had left on a trip, he said. Deputies began questioning Sanford about his uncle's treatment of him, but he responded in one-word answers and remained tight-lipped. They decided to take him in for further questioning. Perhaps not wanting to get in trouble for lying to the cops, or maybe because he felt safe to speak once he was away from the ranch, Sanford Clark told officers everything that had happened beginning from when he'd moved in with his uncle two years earlier. The tale, he told, was unbelievable, horrible, and shocking. At first, authorities weren't sure if they should believe what the boy was saying. But before long, they'd have proof that not only was it true, but the events that had taken place in Wineville were even worse than they could imagine. Sanford Wesley Clark arrived at his uncle Gordon Northcott's chicken farm in Wineville when he was just 13. Before long, his uncle began abusing him and sexually molesting him. Threatened with death if he tried to run away, Sanford felt trapped by his violent uncle. But this tale of abuse and horror was just beginning. Gordon Northcott began bringing other boys to the ranch, Sanford said. One was a Mexican ranch hand that one day just disappeared. Sanford didn't know what happened to him, but he was afraid his uncle may have been abusing him too. Sanford then told the deputies about still other boys. Gordon lured these kids into his truck, and then they were brought to the ranch. Once there, the boys were imprisoned by Northcott. He would rape the boys, and days later, or sometimes longer, kill them and bury their bodies on the property. Sanford said that his uncle poured quicklime into these graves to quickly decompose the bodies. Sanford explained how Northcott drove to Los Angeles to pick up these boys. He had made Sanford go along with him at least once. Sanford believed that this was to put the boys at ease when accepting a ride from a stranger. Seeing another boy their age inside the vehicle would seem more safe to accept the ride. The LAPD was contacted, and detectives arrived in Riverside County to check out the boys' claims. They brought along with them photos of several boys who had been reported missing from the Los Angeles area. Some of them in their teens had been recorded as runaways. They showed the photos to Sanford and asked if he recognized any of them as the boys brought to the farm. One of the photos was of nine-year-old Walter Collins, now missing for six months. Yes, Sanford said. Walter was one of the boys kidnapped by his uncle. Sanford began detailing the fate of Walter Collins as well as some other missing boys. Walter was lured away by Northcott on that fateful day, March 10, 1928. Walter actually knew Northcott, by sight at least. Northcott had worked for a time at the grocery store where Walter sometimes shopped for his mother. 
Northcott had offered the boy a ride home. Before Walter could register that he was in danger, Northcott had trapped him in his truck and drove him to Wineville. Once there, he sexually molested the boy and held him prisoner. Walter had already been held at the ranch for a few days when Northcott's mother, Sarah Louise, called to announce that she was coming out for a visit. Before she arrived, Northcott hid Walter in the chicken coop. Sarah became suspicious when her son acted oddly and then insisted she stay away from the chicken coop. She soon discovered the boy hidden there. Northcott then confessed to his mother what he'd done. Sarah told her son that since Walter could identify him, they would have to kill him. She also suggested that all three of them, herself, Gordon, and Sanford, had to participate in killing the boy so that they could not turn on one another should they ever be questioned about it. They would all be equally guilty, Sarah said, so this ensured that no one would talk. Walter had been sleeping, Sanford said, when Northcott attacked him, hitting him in the head with the blunt end of an axe. Then Sanford was forced to take a turn striking the boy as well. Sarah struck the final blow. When Northcott was sure he was dead, he took the boy's body and buried it on the property near the chicken coop. But Walter Collins was just one of Northcott's victims. Sanford said two brothers had also been kidnapped and brought to the farm. Nelson and Louis Winslow, aged 10 and 12, had gone missing from Pomona, California, just two months after Walter's disappearance. Pomona was located approximately 30 miles from where Walter was last seen. A few days after the brothers went missing, their parents received a strange letter in the mail. It was from the boys who said they were heading to Mexico and not to worry about them. A few days later, another letter arrived. This one said not to bother looking for them because they, quote, planned to stay missing as long as possible so that they would become famous. Sanford said that once it became too difficult to keep them alive, the Winslow brothers met the same fate as Walter. Northcott killed them with an axe and also buried their bodies near the chicken coop. Investigators took Sanford back to the ranch and he led them to where he said the boys were buried. They began digging on the property, but intact bodies were not found in the graves. However, some pieces of bone were discovered there, finger bones and other small portions. A pathologist determined that the bones were from young males. Gordon Northcott was nowhere to be found, and a search for him began. In the meantime, his home and ranch were searched for evidence. Axes with dried blood and hair on them were found. A blood-soaked mattress was also discovered in the home. Investigators also found proof that the Winslow brothers had been at the ranch. A library book checked out to one of the boys was found, and also clothing belonging to the brothers was found in the chicken coop. Investigators found more letters written by the Winslow boys. Obviously dictated by Northcott, they were addressed to their parents and assured them that they were fine. However, nothing found at the property conclusively proved that Walter Collins had been kept there. A warrant was issued for Gordon Northcott's arrest. He was suspected of the murders of at least two boys and possibly more. Because he was a Canadian citizen, the authorities in that country were made aware that he may have fled there. It was a good guess. Just five days after Sanford told the police all he knew, Northcott was found in British Columbia and arrested. Not long after, his mother Sarah, who'd also fled the country, was arrested in Alberta, Canada. Both were returned to the U.S. to be questioned.
Gordon Stewart Northcott was returned to Los Angeles and interrogated about the boys who'd gone missing from Los Angeles. He would prove to be a frustratingly difficult person to get straight answers from. At first, he denied everything, even when presented with the evidence found on his property. He was strangely nonchalant and almost giddy at being questioned by detectives about the gruesome crimes they suspected him of committing. Finally, hoping to make Northcott face the seriousness of the charges he potentially faced, detectives took him back to his property to point out what they'd found. Once there, Northcott confessed to four murders and hinted at more. He confessed to the kidnapping and murders of Walter Collins, the Winslow brothers, and one other boy named Elvin Gothea. Gothea was a Mexican teen he had hired as a ranch hand. He confessed to shooting and killing the boy on his property. He then decapitated the body, crushed the skull with a hammer, and threw it into the desert, hoping the body would never be identified. The headless body of Gothea had been found a month before Walter's disappearance. It had been wrapped in a burlap sack and dumped in a ditch in La Puente. Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies determined that the victim had been shot once in the heart. Gothea may have been Northcott's first victim. Northcott verbally confessed to the four murders, but hinted that there may have been more victims. However, in his written confession later that day, he admitted to only the murder of Alvin Gothea. Northcott's habit of confessing and then recanting would become an ongoing pattern of behavior. Sarah Louise, Northcott's mother, would confess to taking part in the murder of Walter Collins. She admitted it was she who delivered the final blow and had helped bury the body near the chicken coop. She told investigators that the bodies were hastily buried because of Sanford's sister Jesse Clark's imminent visit. Later, the bodies were removed from their graves, taken out to the desert, and burned, according to Sarah Northcott. Sarah Northcott pled guilty and was sentenced on December 31, 1928, to life in prison. She was spared the death penalty only because she was a woman, according to the judge. She would serve her sentence at the California Women's Prison in Tehachapi. But Gordon decided to plead not guilty, and his trial was set for January of 1929. His odd behavior, his habit of confessing and then recanting, and his unwillingness to cooperate with his appointed defense attorneys would turn the trial into a month-long spectacle. Gordon Stewart Northcott's trial began on January 13, 1929. The press had dubbed his crimes the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. Christine Collins had been informed of Northcott's confession to abducting and killing Walter. Still holding out hope, however, Christine was not completely convinced that he had murdered her son. She was present for each day of the trial to hear the evidence against Northcott. Before the trial could even commence, Northcott made things difficult by disagreeing with his attorneys and firing them one after another. He then made the announcement that he would be representing himself. No one thought this was a good idea, as he was facing a possible death sentence if convicted. But Northcott, always convinced he was the smartest person in the room, insisted. Some of the more bizarre scenes to come out of the trial included Northcott sitting on the stand, questioning himself as his own attorney, and then answering his own questions as the defendant. He also made several ill-advised admissions, admitting at one point that he abused young boys because he, quote, loved them, unquote. Northcott's father, Cyrus George, took the stand and testified that his son had admitted the murders to him, even taking him to the graves near the chicken coop. 
He testified at seeing evidence that the bodies had been buried there, but later his son had told him that the remains had been moved and burned. But the most mind-boggling part of the trial had to be when Northcott's mother took the stand. Some spectators already were becoming convinced that the defendant was exhibiting signs of mental illness, and once Sarah Louise began speaking, they now wondered if it might be hereditary. Upon being asked basic background information, Sarah had trouble answering. She drew a blank at trying to recall the names of her five children. She also couldn't remember how many times she'd been married. Sarah told the court that she was actually Gordon's grandmother. She said that her husband had raped their daughter, and the girl had given birth to Gordon. She and her husband had raised Gordon to believe that Sarah was his mother. But later in her testimony, Sarah changed her story, now saying that Gordon was her son, and his father was, quote, the illegitimate son of an English nobleman, unquote. It was hard to know if anything Sarah Louise said was the truth, as she continued to contradict herself throughout her testimony. The one consistent statement she did make was that she would do anything for Gordon, which did little to strengthen her credibility. When Gordon Northcott took the stand to question himself about his childhood, he claimed that his father had molested him. He also claimed that he'd had an incestuous relationship with his mother-slash-grandmother, Sarah Louise. After a chaotic and bizarre 27-day trial, Northcott was found guilty for the abduction, molestation, and first-degree murder of the Winslow brothers. He was also found guilty of the murder of Elvin Gothea. There was not enough evidence to charge him with the murder of Walter Collins. However, since Northcott's mother had confessed to killing Collins, prosecutors felt that justice had been served for his murder as well. On February 8, 1929, Gordon Stewart Northcott was sentenced to death by hanging. While in prison awaiting his execution, Northcott continued to make contradictory statements to the warden and the press. At times, he protested his innocence, sometimes accusing his nephew Samford Clark of the murders. Other times, he boasts that he had killed many boys, sometimes pegging the total number at between 19 and 20. In most modern-day accounts of Northcott's crimes, it's often said that he was the serial murderer of 20 boys. I have found no evidence in my research to corroborate this claim, and it's almost certainly an exaggeration. Several times, as his date with the hangman neared, Northcott offered to lead investigators to more bodies, but he always backed out at the last minute. Details in Sanford Clark's account of Walter Collins's murder was independently corroborated in Sarah Louise's confession. But Christine Collins, refusing to give up hope that her son was alive, continued to seek answers about Walter's disappearance. As the execution date loomed, she attempted to make one last plea to Northcott to tell the truth. She began corresponding with Northcott, who in a final act of cruelty, took pleasure in stringing her along. He hinted at details he could provide that would prove what had happened to her son. Sometimes he suggested he was responsible, and at other times that he was not, but knew who was. Desperate to know the truth, Christine received permission from the warden at San Quentin Prison to meet with Northcott. She wanted him to look her in the eye, and then she thought perhaps he would finally answer truthfully. In his final letter to her before her trip to Northern California, Northcott promised to confess to Christine what happened to Walter. 
But once she arrived and was sitting across from the death row inmate, Northcott once again recanted. He said he did not know Walter and had not abducted him. Christine was very disappointed at not getting a definitive answer. However, she took this small glimmer of hope and held on to it tightly. She would never give up hope that Walter was still alive. During the time Gordon Northcott sat on death row, he took sick pleasure in telling tales to his jailers about various crimes he'd claimed to have committed. He wanted to portray himself as the worst of the worst, and enjoyed having the attention of the warden himself, who he offered to confess to personally. The warden would later describe his conversations with Northcott as, quote, lurid accounts of mass murder, sodomy, oral copulation, and torture so vivid it made my flesh creep, unquote. But Northcott, far from being the cold, calculated serial killer he presented himself to be, and I'm sure he would have loved being identified as such if the term had existed then, instead spent his last moments as a cowardly, quivering, pathetic spectacle. On October 2, 1930, 23-year-old Gordon Stewart Northcott was taken from death row to the gallows located within the walls of the prison. Northcott's knees began to buckle as he approached the steps to the gallows. He had to be nearly carried up the stairs as he began to weep and wail. Before the trap was released, Northcott screamed out, A prayer! Please say a prayer for me! Several families whose sons had gone missing were given hope once more when notes with hand-drawn maps were found left behind by Northcott in his cell. But even these were contradictory. On one was written, I'm not guilty. But on another was a map with coffins drawn to represent graves scattered on and near his ranch. Search here to find what you are looking for, the note read. The areas were searched, but nothing was found. Here are some final details about some of the people connected with this story. Arthur Hutchins, the boy who claimed to be Walter Collins, eventually became a contributing member of society. He first sold concessions at carnivals and later moved to California. He became a horse trainer and then a jockey. He married and had a family. He passed away in 1954 of a blood clot. Northcott's nephew, Sanford Clark, was not charged with any of the murders. His confession and cooperation in the investigation of Northcott's crimes may have saved the lives of other boys and young men. He was, however, sentenced to five years at the Whittier State School for his part in covering up evidence of the crimes. His sentence was later commuted to 23 months. He was returned to Canada and later served in World War II. When he returned home, he married, and he and his wife adopted and raised two sons. In a later interview, Sanford said he didn't want to have biological children, afraid of passing along the evil that had infected his uncle and grandmother. He and his wife, June, were married for 55 years. He died in 1991 at the age of 78. Sarah Louise Northcott was paroled from prison after serving 12 years of her life sentence. She continued to claim that her son was innocent. She also claimed that Gordon had been sexually abused by their entire family. Christine Collins never gave up hope that her son was alive. She continued to call hospitals and police stations around the country in hopes that he might have suffered an injury or memory loss and just needed someone to identify him and bring him home. Her hopes were further buoyed 
when five years after Gordon Northcott was executed, a missing boy thought to be another one of his victims was found alive and returned home. Christine Collins also continued to try and collect on the lawsuit she'd won against Captain Jones. In 1941, the Superior Court ordered Jones, now retired from the LAPD, to pay Christine over $15,000, as interest had accrued on the original amount. Christine never did collect any money from Captain Jones. She died in Los Angeles in 1964. Walter Collins was officially declared dead in June of 1929. The town of Wineville, California, forever associated with the gruesome chicken coop murders, had its name officially changed to Miraloma in 1930. A movie was released in 2008 based on the Walter Collins case. Titled Changeling, it starred Angelina Jolie as Christine Collins, who was nominated for an Academy Award for her performance. The film's director, Clint Eastwood, said he cast Jolie because, quote, she was a mother and had the look that fit that time period, unquote. Jolie said that Christine Collins reminded her of her own mother. The film earned $113 million at the box office and received three Oscar nominations. I highly recommend it. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Don't forget, you can become a Patreon member for as little as $2 a month to get early release ad-free episodes and other perks, including bonus episodes. At the $10 level, you'll have access to all the bonus episodes ever released on Patreon. That's over three years' worth of additional content. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music for the show was composed by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.